This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Rheumatoid Solutions Podcast with Clint Patterson, helping you to live an easier, healthier and happier life. Today's guest, I've been wanting to get on the show for a long time. We met in Melbourne, Australia back in February 2019, and he gave a presentation at the Doctors for Nutrition conference, which was a sold out, wonderful event put on by some friends here in Australia. And he came all the way from the UK and gave a fantastic talk about the gut. He is a gastroenterologist and an expert in nutrition in the aim of having the most optimal gut health and therefore having the most optimal health overall. It's Dr. Alan Desmond, and he's joined us at 6.30 in the morning. So I'm very grateful to have you on the show. Alan, thanks for joining us. And delighted to be here and lovely to connect with you again. That was such an amazing conference in Melbourne. Uh, Really fond memories of that week in Melbourne. And uh, regarding 6.30, like yourself, I've got young kids. So I was up anyway, Clint, let's be honest. (laughs) <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm glad that you're able to uh, spend some time with us. Um, I really want to learn all about the gut today. You know, my audience is very familiar with the relationship between inflammation and what they eat. And they have been well educated by many other guests in the past about how we need to eat well and how a plant-based diet can be really, really helpful for reducing inflammation in the joints. And my program that I created some years ago, which has been very popular, uh, is about using an elimination diet followed by a reintroduction process, and it's all plants. So I want to know about what the gut actually looks like by someone who looks at the gut all the time. And I just want a 101 from, from when we digest our food in our stomach through until it comes out the other end. I mean, tell us what's going on in there. Yeah, it's worth talking about, isn't it? I always say to people that we're obsessed with food, Clint, absolutely obsessed with food. You pick up the weekend newspapers and it's going to be weekend recipes and restaurant reviews and, you know, all this amazing stuff about food. But once we've chewed and swallowed it, we're like a little bit embarrassed to or really embarrassed to even discuss what happens. But we all digest food. We all poop. We all use the bathroom. But um If people were more willing to discuss that on a daily basis, my job would be a lot easier as a gastroenterologist. I I get it, but I just don't know why people get so embarrassed talking about their digestion. Can you imagine if it was cool to sit down at dinner with your family at a family get together and to come into the room and sit down and say, you know, guys, I haven't had a poo for seven days is that normal? Is that something I should be worried about? And then your auntie might say, yeah, that happens to me sometimes. You know, I eat more vegetables and, you know, I saw some blood on my poo. So I saw the doctor, but he said it was a hemorrhoid, you know. So it, why don't we talk about this stuff? Why are we well, so embarrassed about the it? The kids would love it, right? That's kids all kids would, want to talk about it. The kids so would happened, love it. Yeah. So it's obviously a natural thing that we should be talking about that we use social etiquette to stop talking about as we get older. And it's so important to understand as well, you know, over two and a half thousand years ago to misquote Hippocrates, all health begins in the gut. And 
So that was a, a concept that's as old as the concept of modern medicine. And when I first heard that in medical school, I thought, okay, yeah, that sounds like something you might say two and a half thousand years ago. But <laughs> but now, you know, we, we know there's a lot of truth to that. And there's a lot of wisdom in that ancient saying. Um, in many ways, all health does begin in the gut. And in a way, a lot of that comes back to the, the incredibly important role of the human gut microbiome. We'll talk about that later. So we take our food, we chew it, the digestion process starts immediately. There's enzymes in our saliva, amylases start breaking down the protein. We then turn that little food into like a little glob that we call a bolus. Um, we swallow that, goes through a throat, it drops through a tube called the esophagus or gullet, which is about 30 to 40 centimeters long. That brings the food down into the stomach proper, which is like a, a kind of a flask-shaped sack, which acts like a little cement mixer. It keeps moving the food around. We've got a powerful acid in there, hydrochloric acid, which helps to break the food down further. And the food will basically stay in your stomach until it's a liquid consistency. And we call that chyme. So that chyme then passes through a little hole called the pylorus, and it heads into the small intestine. Now, the small intestine is called small because it's quite narrow. It's only a couple of centimeters wide, but it's really long. So it's a very long. And I think that's often what people describe as their guts. Uh, you know, when you see like, um, I don't know, like a horror show or something, someone's guts are coming out. You know, that's the small intestine, right? So the small intestine is really important because so much um, absorption of nutrients um, occurs in the small intestine. And that's where most of the absorption goes on in terms of absorbing your carbohydrates, your fats, your proteins, your phytonutrients, et cetera. So the small intestine then delivers the residue, whatever's left over to your large intestine. And what arrives in the large intestine is a lot of broken down food particles, stuff that hasn't been absorbed, but also a tremendous amount of liquid because in digesting your food, your intestine produces a lot of liquid. We call it succus entericus, which is a great word, which means, I think it's an old word that means um, the juice of the intestine, succus entericus. And that helps to digest everything. So when the food or chyme arrives in your large bowel, your colon, which is wider, shorter, and leads to your bottom, when the food arrives there, it's actually quite liquidy. It's already taken on that characteristic brown color because of the digested bile that's mixed in with it. And the large bowel, we used to think that the only thing your large bowel did was absorb water because the stuff that arrives in the large bowel is very watery. And as it passes through the large bowel, which is about a meter long, and makes its way to the bottom end, it turns into what we would recognize as a poo. So it becomes drier and becomes more formed. So we thought that's all it did. Just for, if, and if, you have, if you're not able to absorb fluid in your large bowel, you're going to get dehydrated. But in fact, we now know that the large bowel is the home of the human gut microbiome. And it brings us right back to this ancient idea that all health begins in the gut because we know that each one of us is carrying trillions of bacteria, viruses, archaea, and yeasts predominantly within our large bowel. You know, uh, humans, Clint, I mean, the modern human is about 200,000 years old, but the bugs that make up our human gut microbiome 
are like the close relatives of the Earth's very first living organisms. These little unicellular organisms or clumps of unicellular organisms. And they've been described as a control center for human biology. And what we recognize now is that the guts in our, or the bugs in our gut microbiome are major determinants of human health. Our health depends on their health. Their health depends on our health. And we can really influence what goes on in our gut microbiome and how it interacts with our body by feeding it different foods. Mm, fascinating. Fantastic introduction. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about how these bugs might influence our immune system and how if we can get them in a good set of diversity and quantity, we might have a more stable immune system. Yeah, so the foods we eat are really, really important in terms of inflammatory processes. So you know that an inflammatory response is a healthy thing. So if our body becomes damaged or injured, if we, even if there's early cancer cells in our body, our body responds to that by, monitor, by mounting an acute inflammatory response. So if you hit your finger with a hammer, there's damage, your thumb is going to get big and swollen and red because there's increased blood flow and lymphocytes and repair cells. It's really, really important for human health. Inflammation is healthy. However, if that inflammation becomes long-term chronic inflammation, then that becomes an unhealthy state. And chronic inflammation is a unifying problem we know in arthritis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, but also we've seen papers showing how chronic inflammation is a common characteristic in heart disease. Even things like depression have been linked to a chronic inflammatory state. The foods we eat have a huge influence on how much inflammation resides within our body. Um, we saw a paper coming out, I think, last year from a team in New Zealand, which I think included our mutual friend, Joel Craddock, who's a registered dietitian, where they compared um, systemic inflammatory markers between omnivores and people who eat a long-term plant-based diet. And what they saw was that people who eat a long-term plant-based diet have lower systemic markers of inflammation. So why is that? Well, if you are eating a diet that is rich in antioxidants and phytonutrients and carotenoids and polyphenols and you know fiber and healthy unsaturated fats, then you are reducing your inflammatory burden of the food you eat. On the flip side, if you're eating an omnivorous or very meat-heavy diet, then your diet is not only are you missing out on fiber and phytonutrients and all the beneficial aspects and the vitamin A and the vitamin C and the vitamin E that you get and the magnesium and all the rest of it and the K2 and everything that you get on by eating more plants. But you're taking those plants out and what are you having instead? Well, you're consuming heme iron, which is pro-inflammatory. You're consuming uh, animal protein, which is pro-inflammatory. And one of the key mechanisms whereby an animal-based diet promotes inflammation is through its influence on the human gut microbiome. So I'll give you two examples. Uh, number one, about in 2014, a group of researchers in Harvard and University of California looked at the impact of, of profound dietary change on the human gut microbiome. They took a group, I think, of healthy university students and for four days, everybody ate a very meat-heavy, low-fiber, high-fat diet, eggs and bacon and cheese, etc. 
And then they took a break. And then for four days, they ate a healthy whole food plant-based diet, completely plant-based, lots of lentils and beans and greens, et cetera. During the four days that these individuals were eating the meat-heavy, high-fat, high-animal product diet, the researchers saw remarkable changes in their gut microbiome. What they saw was very quickly, within days, they saw an outgrowth of bacteria that are known to promote inflammation in the gut. And in fact, although these researchers weren't inflammatory bowel disease researchers, which is one of the areas that I'm really interested in, they did find, and they commented that within days, they had seen an increase in bacteria that are known to be, uh, have the ability to trigger inflammatory bowel disease. And that makes sense to me as a gastroenterologist, because I know that animal protein consumption and high fat diets are very strongly associated with inflammatory bowel disease, like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And when they put those individuals on a plant-based diet, they saw the exact opposite, where they saw healthy bacteria growing, the sort of healthy bacteria that use fiber to produce short-chain fatty acids, which are an incredibly beneficial substance that not only reduce systemic inflammation, but also help to control our appetite, help to control our blood sugars, help to keep the lining of our gut healthy, help to keep the colonocytes in our large bowel functioning well. So it's, there's such a, a different effect of these two dietary approaches on the human gut microbiome. And then the second example, which I'm sure you and your listeners are aware of, is the TMAO story. So I think also in 2014, a group of researchers in the US announced that they found this new blood test that could predict people's risk of having a heart attack. And in fact, the first study had been, they'd taken individuals coming to the emergency department and they'd done a bunch of new potential biomarker blood tests on them, in addition to like the standard tests that we do. And then they'd analyzed the data a few months later and found that if your blood level of this certain chemical was high, then you were far more likely to go on and have a serious cardiac event. And further research showed that this same blood marker could be used in the community, that if you just went out to healthy volunteers and measured their level in the blood of this particular chemical, you could predict their risk of having heart disease in the future. And what was this chemical? It was TMAO, trimethylamine oxide. So what is TMAO? Well, when you eat meat and eggs, your gut bacteria receive that animal protein and particularly these substances called carnitine and choline, which are found in animal products. And they metabolize them and break them down. And your gut microbes turn them into a chemical called TMA, trimethylamine, which is then absorbed by your bowel, transported to your liver and converted into TMAO. And multiple research studies have shown that not only is TMAO pro-inflammatory, raising your inflammatory markers. It's also pro-atherogenic, promoting atherosclerosis and contributing to the formation of cardiovascular disease, renal disease, stroke, etc. And for me, that's incredible because this is stuff that is made by our gut microbes when we eat meat and eggs. And it may well be that the human body is designed to eat very little or none of those products. Because although choline, which is the substance from the eggs that causes the problem, although that is an essential nutrient, humans need it to be healthy. 
You can get all the choline you need by eating a healthy whole food plant-based diet. It seems that if you're eating a healthy whole food plant-based diet, you're probably going to get two or 300 milligrams a day of choline. You'll absorb it in your bowel. It never gets down to your gut microbiome. Your TMAO levels don't go up. So you get the choline you need, but you don't get the adverse effects of excess choline. And we know um, further studies have shown that if you take someone who's eating a healthy whole food plant-based diet or a completely plant-based diet for about 12 months, and you give them some meat to eat. There was one study where they paid a vegan to eat a steak. That really happened. And then they measured his TMA levels after he'd eaten the steak. And they didn't even, they didn't go up. And the reason they didn't go up was because your gut microbiome is dynamic. You can change it. And by not eating animal products for a year, the bacteria in his gut microbiome that are required to turn the meat into harmful TMA had just died off. So they'd become so infrequent within his human gut microbiome that he didn't even have the ability to produce this harmful chemical anymore. Although other studies have shown that if he had continued eating steak every day, he would promote those harmful bacteria and they would eventually reach the point where once again, his TMAO levels would go up and his cardiovascular risk would go up. Mm, fascinating stuff. The first time I read uh, information about uh, this from another gastroenterologist was from Dr. Hiromi Shinya, who is a guy who uh, now in his 70s, who works at, I believe, the Einstein Clinic in New York. Um, and in, he invented a, a non-invasive way to remove polyps. Um, so I don't know if you've, you're familiar with him and for his historical contributions or not, uh, but he advocates a plant-based diet and his combination of some certain foods, which is buckwheat, quinoa, millet, amaranth, mm. these alkalizing pseudograins, it was he that planted it in my mind to go down that path after being on a raw food diet for a long time. Oh, really? Oh, was yes. it was a gastroenterologist that you down it, that track? Exactly. Wow. He, it was him uh, Him and Dr. McDougall were the two most influential, unaware mentors in my, my journey. Now, I was fascinated reading his book called The Enzyme Factor and later The Microbe Factor. He talked intricately about the insides of the gut and why he recommended these foods and said, these are the foods that are the least inflammatory. When I say these foods, I mean plant-based foods. And it was just so convincing. And mm. now I've got you here in front of me. I'd like you to talk about what it actually looks like on the inside. And is the investigative tool, is it a colonoscopy or are there other methods to determine what's going on on the inside? And what does the experience look like from behind from behind the screen, not as the patient. Um, and what do you see when there's inflammation? And walk us through a bad bowel versus a good bowel and even colitis and, if possible, someone with rheumatoid arthritis and what do they look like? Yeah, so I guess how do we assess the bowel? Well, we've got a number of things that we do in clinical practice. I mean, one, if we really want to look at how much inflammation someone has in their gut, the first thing we'll often do is a non-invasive test. We'll get the patient to provide a little poo sample and there's various chemicals we can measure in the stool. The one that we use most is a thing called fecal calprotectin, which is a chemical that appears in your stool if your bowel lining is inflamed. But what's interesting is that even in the absence of a condition like Crohn's or colitis or rheumatoid arthritis, if we do a whole bunch of stool samples from a general population in a high-income country where people are eating a standard Western diet, we do find a baseline level of gut inflammation. 
which is regarded as normal. So we, so if that, if you have no gut inflammation, that number comes back as zero. If you've got like Crohn's or colitis or a really, you know, a significant inflammatory disease, that number might be in the thousands. But there's a lot of argument in the world of gastroenterology about what's a normal level of gut inflammation. So some gastroenterologists say anything less than 150 is normal. You know, and that, so there, there, it's interesting, isn't it? There's been studies looking at placing individuals with metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, obesity, and heart disease on a plant-based diet, and as well as seeing beneficial changes in the gut microbiome you all, and beneficial changes in blood sugar control. You'll also see that baseline level of gut inflammation reducing. So isn't that interesting? So the, yes. the baseline gut inflammation may not be baseline at all. It may just be a symptom of this standard Western diet. So that's where we'll often start if we suspect a condition of like colitis or Crohn's disease. And if someone has an elevated level with symptoms, or if they've just had some symptoms that make us need to have a look anyway, like the passage of blood or mucus or whatever, to assess the bowel, we'll often do a colonoscopy. Um, So a colonoscopy camera test, Um, where we ask our patient to take a whole bunch of laxatives and clean out the inside of their bowel. And then they lay on their side. We have some nurses and assistants helping. And then a doctor or endoscopist will simply put a a tube into your bottom end. So we call that a colonoscope. It's a flexible tube and it's got a built-in high-definition camera. So just like TV sets, the cameras and the displays have gotten amazing in the last five or six years. So we get a big screen, high-definition picture of what your colon and or your stomach, or if we're going in the top end, look like in real time. And that's one of the things that really drew me into gastroenterology as a specialty. Because if we suspect you've got Crohn's or colitis or an ulcer, or celiac disease, or any of these common conditions, diverticular disease, et cetera, we don't have to depend on a blood test Mm. or a scan to tell us, although we do use those a lot and our radiology colleagues are amazing. We can go in. We can go in and have a look Mm. at the living organism and see what it's doing in real time. And what do we see? Well, if there's... So if you think about the healthy gut lining, it looks a lot like the lining inside your cheek. So it's pink, it's shiny, because it's got a protective layer of mucus on it. It's healthy, right? It's, it's functioning, it's doing what it needs to do, it's producing the chemicals it needs to produce, it's absorbing the nutrients that it needs to absorb. But when we see areas that are diseased, things that we notice are that nice, shiny glossiness is reduced or absent, That's particularly relevant in things like Crohn's disease, where the gut epithelial barrier and the protective mucus layer has been damaged and removed. And instead of the nice pink lining, we might see an area that looks like a red sore. And in fact, it may even been ulcerated. So the nice pink shiny layer is gone. And what we see is an underlying kind of whitish area. It's, you know, unpleasant to look at. And when I do presentations, actually, about Crohn's disease in particular, I will show photographs, just one or two, because sometimes you're speaking just before lunch, just one or two of what an unhealthy bowel looks like. And 
although there's a lot of subtlety and a lot of experience involved in interpreting the disease that you're looking at, and with years of practice, you can look at a diseased bowel and say, oh, yes, I know what this is just by looking at it. I've, I can narrow this down to two or three conditions. But when you show uh, just a lay audience pictures of a healthy bowel and an unhealthy bowel, there's, people know immediately which one is the unhealthy one. There, there's something, it just looks so abnormal and unnatural that I think people intuitively go, ah, the one, that one is the diseased bowel. Yeah. Okay. And of all, well, I, I really want you to talk about any obs- observations, personal observations you've made with rheumatoid or sciatic arthritis, especially. And if you've been able to see a correlation between someone who presents with a lot of joint pain, uh, debilitation, inflammation, potentially first measured by that stool test that you do, and then seeing a level of dysbiosis or just imperfections on the colon lining, just as you've described. So have you personally seen that connection and what you've learned in that area about, you know, that, that interesting uh, relationship? Yeah. So, so that, that, that connection, well, we know that, look, the first thing to say is that we view these as different systems. They're not different systems. Medically, we have turned them into different systems. We talk about the digestive system and the respiratory system and the rheumatological system. But that's a completely artificial construct. It's just one human body, just one system. So of course there's going to be connections. I mean, that shouldn't surprise anyone. If I say to someone, yeah, your gut is connected to arthritis, and they go, really? Of course, it's the same system. I mean, the whole concept that these are different departments in a building is just a completely artificial construct that, that modern medicine requires. We know, so for example, in Crohn's disease um, and ulcerative colitis, patients with those conditions are prone to developing arthritis. They are maybe more at risk of rheumatoid arthritis, but they are also at risk of developing very specific arthritis that are specific to patients with gut health problems. And those are enteropathic arthritis. And we will refer patients like that to see our rheumatological um, colleagues. And often many of the medications that we use to reduce the inflammation that we see in the joints of people with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are the same medications that we use to control the inflammation in the gut. And of course, it's the same mechanisms. And it's the same mechanism. So the same dietary change is also helpful. So that, again, that shouldn't surprise anyone. One of the key things about is, you know, we talked about the gut microbiome earlier. We talked a little bit about Crohn's disease, which when I was in medical school, I was taught was an autoimmune condition where your immune system was genetically wrong. You'd gotten unlucky in the genetic lottery, so your immune system is packing your gut. There's nothing we can do about it, but we can give you medication to reduce the inflammation. We now know, of course, that the environmental factors, including diet, are incredibly important in promoting that inflammation. And we also know that the immune system isn't attacking your gut. It's attacking your gut microbiome. And the damage to the gut is incidental. It's collateral. It's significant, but but it's collateral damage. So it's not surprising that if you have a condition like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, where your gut epithelial barrier has been damaged to the extent 
that your immune system is now being exposed to the gut microbiome in a way that it was never designed to be exposed. So your gut microbiome is being educated on attacking the viruses and bacteria and archaea and gut luminal contents of the food that you consume. So therefore, you now have antibodies against all of these things. So it shouldn't surprise us that those individuals can then start to get abnormal, chronic rather than acute immune reactions against different parts of their body, including their joints. So I think that answers part of your question. I think the next part of your question was, do I observe a dysbiosis in patients with rheumatoid arthritis? Mm. So, so although I'm absolutely obsessed with the gut microbiome, Clint, doing routine microbiome analysis hasn't yet entered the level where we can use it usefully within our clinical practice. So that's not something I check routinely in my patients at clinic. However, I'm aware of the literature showing that individuals with uh, rheumatoid arthritis have a particular form of dysbiosis or unhealthy gut microbiome, as do people with so many of these conditions of Western civilization, as Dennis Burke had called them in the 1970s. Um, so things like obesity, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease, and ulcerative colitis, and Crohn's disease, and rheumatoid arthritis, all of these conditions are associated with some form of unhealthy mix of gut microbes. And it's difficult to look at cause and effect. But as I said earlier, your gut microbiome, whether healthy or unhealthy, isn't fixed. It's not set in stone. You can change your gut microbiome from a healthy to an unhealthy just by changing your food and by getting more sleep and by exercising and by not taking unnecessary medications and avoiding unnecessary antibiotics. You can improve or get a healthier balance within your gut microbiome. When we do things like gastroscopies and colonoscopies in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and other arthritis, we sometimes find out that they actually have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis in a very mild form. So they didn't suspect it, but they may have had some symptom, maybe a little blood in the stool or whatever. And then when we do the camera test, we go, oh, actually, you've got very mild Crohn's disease or you've got very mild ulcerative colitis. So we see those ulcers and things that I mentioned earlier. So, uh, so that's the first thing, and that speaks to the overlap between these conditions. And of course, the other thing that we'll often see, Clint, is because individuals with bad inflammation are often on non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, diclofenac, uh, ibuprofen, aspirin, et cetera, et cetera. Sadly, those medications can have a lot of adverse effects on your gut health, damaging, causing ulcers removing the protective mucus layer that keeps everything healthy. So probably the most common thing that we will find when we do endoscopies on individuals with long-term rheumatological problems will be the side effects of the medications they're having to take. Oh my gosh, there's a quotable right there because I've been saying that for a long time, not because I, you know, it's just my opinion, but from all the studies, right? So the studies are, there must be a dozen different studies showing the relationship between non-steroidal anti-inflammatory use and rheumatoid arthritis and inflammation of the gut and so forth. So it's, I mean, it's very clear, but I didn't know that, you know, it was quite literally visible 
by looking at the surface internally and seeing that damage? No, you're very much so. And earlier on, we spoke about how one of our first tests that we'll do in individuals with symptoms of gut problems is a stool test to check for inflammation. Yeah, yeah. But when we ask people to do, well, to provide that stool sample, we tell them, we always, every single time we say, look, do you take any anti-inflammatory drugs like uh, ibuprofen or norepinephrine or yada, yada? And if you do, will you stop taking them for six weeks before you do the stool test? Because if you're on those medications, we will find gut inflammation when we check. So those medications, counterintuitively, although they are designed to reduce systemic inflammation and they're great short-term painkillers, I mean, no doubt about it, if you've got a broken bone, a big dose of diclofenac is going to help you to reduce the pain of that broken bone. But in terms of long-term use, um, they do have significant adverse effects on the human gut. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. Yeah, there was a while there where Dr. McDougall, going back about 12 years, said that one of the exceptions might have been aspirin, but then he later found another study and revised his guidelines and, and said aspirin too causes the uh, uh, intestinal permeability and inflammation. Is that also what you've observed? Yeah, and aspirin is one of the leading causes of uh, stomach ulcers and bleeding wow. from the lining of the gut. But yeah. I, I mean, when people, I mean, within my practice, whether I'm treating Crohn's, colitis, diverticular disease, or yep. whatever the condition happens to be, I always make a point to educate my patients on the benefits of an unprocessed plant predominant diet. Yes. But of course, just like rheumatoid arthritis, with conditions like Crohn's and colitis, these chronic inflammatory conditions, by the time I meet a patient, they've already had this disease for eight, nine, 10 years. Often I'll meet patients who've had the disease for longer than that. They've had parts of their bowel removed. They may have a stoma. They no longer have a healthy gut. So although many of the medications that we prescribe do have adverse side effects, and while I'll always educate my patients on healthy dietary change, when people are poorly and unwell and have reduced quality of life, we have to use every tool in the box. So I, I prescribe a lot of the, I mean, personally, I make a point never to prescribe a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug in my practice. I remember prescribing it once on the ward for someone who had gout. And I turned to my junior doctor, my senior house officer, I said, this is the first time I've prescribed ibuprofen in about 15 years. I never prescribed this stuff. But... At the same time, I'm not against prescribing a medication if it's going to help my patient, but they need to know about the healthy dietary and lifestyle changes that can help them to reduce their need for medication in the long term. Mm. And now we, you know, we hadn't talked about this prior, but and I don't want to go anti-medication at all, but just another uh, medication that tends to be very counterproductive for people with rheumatoid is the steroid range of prednisone, prednisolone. Have you also witnessed or know some studies that support that? I, I know the, the studies that support that. I guess my better question for mm. you specifically is, have you also uh, the need to tell them to stop taking steroids too because they show inflammation in the gut or is there a different observation in practice? Well, steroid medications have a host of negative side effects on human health, not least of which is weight gain, hypertension, 
increased blood sugars, risk of type 2 diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But again, just like aspirin, steroid use can damage the gut lining and promote formation of ulcers and bleeding. So we, but I prescribe steroids, but within gastroenterology, when we prescribe steroids, we would usually prescribe them for a maximum of 12 weeks. And we, yeah. we, if we have to put someone on steroids more than twice a year, for us, that means that we need to start rethinking their management because mm. we, we always use steroids as a short-term intervention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where it goes wrong for some folks with RA is because they find in some cases that their rheumatologist is happy to sort of happy to dispense prednisone regularly, especially if the patient doesn't want to take a disease-modifying drug and they're happy yeah. to take prednisone. And then the years go by and then the toll really starts to add up on the body. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, you know, all sorts of more challenges present themselves. It, it's interesting, Clint, and I can only speak from the gastroenterology perspective, is we use a lot of immune-modifying medications as well, infliximab, yes. adalimumab, vedolizumab, methotrexate, et cetera, et cetera, yes. et cetera. But a few years ago, when we looked at the patient outcomes from amongst patients with inflammatory bowel who are on medications, although we worry a lot about the side effects of new, expensive, fancy biologic medications, the medications that cause the most damage are the corticosteroids. So in the gastroenterology world, the, we are very keen not to use steroids. And, but again, that's why dietary intervention is so important yes. because if you have a patient with you know, a chronic inflammatory gut problem or a chronically inflammatory joint problem, there's plenty of evidence out there to show that an unprocessed, predominantly plant-based diet is going to help them to reduce their inflammatory burden and maybe not get off medication, but certainly reduce their need for medication. There's a nice study published two years ago on use of infliximab, for, which is a biologic drug, which is shared, I think, between the rheumatological world and the GI world. And we use infliximab for, for Crohn's disease, for inflammatory bowel disease. But one of the things that encouraged me to look for better answers to the, to the answer what should I eat, doctor, that patients always ask me, is the fact that even with the best possible outcomes, the infliximab medication will get people into remission maybe somewhere between 30 and 60% of the time, which for my patients means that most of my patients, even with the best medical treatment, are living with symptoms and some level of disease activity every day of the week, which isn't a good result for my patients. So even in a best case scenario, a significant number of them are living with their disease. It's a nice study done a couple of, I think just two years ago um, in Japan, where they had, I think, about um, 46 individuals hospitalized with Crohn's disease who were gained remission. And these patients were severely unwell, so they needed to go on the infliximab medication. I'm not arguing with that at all. But what they did in that hospital was they did an inpatient um, education program teaching these individuals the benefits of a whole food plant-based diet. And after six weeks, they had 96% of those patients in remission. 96%. And that's using every tool in the box, healthy diet and lifestyle, plus the best available medication. And we've got 96% in remission. Yeah, absolutely love it. 
So I just glanced at the time and realized how quickly time has passed and I don't want to take up any more any more time of yours than uh, than I'm eligible to. Um, but I wanted to just literally pretend I'm a patient and ask you of the of the exact foods that you recommend or if there is a a program that you have of your own that you you hand out as a leaflet or booklet to your patients. That's question number one. And then to close out question number two, do you see a relationship between people who exercise a lot and use exercise as a therapy or of a lot as a lifestyle promoting uh, activity and their gut health? So they're my two last questions for you. So question number one, we live in a world, Clint, where people the baseline diet, the food culture, the default diet is a super unhealthy diet. 55% of calories come from ultra-processed food, 9% of calories come from fruits and vegetables. <laughs> Whole grains don't feature. So when I start talking to my patients about food, I just start with three simple questions. How many pieces of fruit do you eat every day? How many servings of vegetables do you eat every day? And how many servings of whole grains do you eat every day? I'm hoping that they'll say three or more to each of those answers, because that tells me they're getting at least their modest five-a-day target. But that's where I start. That's where I start. And those three questions, which just take a few moments, which any doctor or any health practitioner can implement in their practice, start some super powerful conversations. Because if that person says to you, what's a whole grain? which sadly is often the response, then you've identified your first target for healthy dietary change. So in the real world, that's how we start. Um, second, and your second question was? Exercise. Exercise, of course. Well, uh, we could have just talked about gut microbes for the last hour easily, right? So if you want a healthy human gut microbiome, that is a microbiome that loves fiber, that produces beneficial short-chain fatty acids, has a great diversity of bacteria within it that can deal with any challenge that, you, that, that arises on a day-to-day -day basis. We know um, that the number one dietary determinant of a healthy and diverse human gut microbiome is the diversity of plants in your diet. But we also know that exercise benefits the human gut microbiome. So I graduated from University College Cork back in Ireland. I worked for time at the APC, the Alimentary Pharmabiotic Research Center, now known as Microbiome Ireland. And a few years ago, they published a really nice paper where they looked at the human gut microbiome within a group of elite rugby players, monster rugby players, and mere mortals, normal people. And they found that the rugby players had increased microbial diversity and a greater richness of fiber-loving bacteria. And substance studies show that we can all benefit from the benefits of regular exercise on the human gut microbiome. So yes, there's definitely some science there. I love that. I'll have to... Um... When I get the transcription of this, I'll pull out and find that study because I think that's going to be one that I can quote too in the future. Yeah, I'll send it to you. I'll, I'll, send, you, I'll send you the abstract. Could I beg you for a couple of more short ones? Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. Um, oils. You know, within the plant-based community, there's often some debate about oils, you know, and I think the, the strict point of view is that it's a processed food, so it's not a whole food plant-based diet. Can you just comment on your personal take on oils or if you're very able to support it from a literature point of view? Um, and then I've got another quick short one for you. Okay. So you want me to answer this quickly? Okay. 
Um, so we know, look, I'm, I'm a whole food person. Okay. I like 90, 95% of what I consume is whole foods. And I wish I could have my patients eat like that. And my patients who've moved to a whole food plant-based diet, the more whole food plant-based, the more benefit they've seen. And I've seen some really remarkable health transformations. My view of oils is that they're very calorie dense. They're very energy dense. Two thirds, maybe 70% of people living in the UK are overweight or obese, which is a major driver of um, poor health. Okay, that's been drawn into really sharp focus by the COVID-19 pandemic. So if you are making the switch to a healthy whole food plant-based diet, and one of your aims is to achieve a healthier body weight, which will be the aim for the vast majority of people who are making this change, then oils are a rich source of calories that you could probably do without. However, if you are eating a healthy whole food plant-based diet, you've already taken out the dairy and the meat and the processed food, which are huge sources of uh, processed fats. So can you get away with having one or two tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil per day, which is full of polyphenols, which has been shown in population studies and mechanistic studies to help reduce atherosclerosis, possibly reduce inflammatory markers? And I would say yes. Um, so that's my approach to it. So do I add oil to my food at home? Not much, to be honest. We have some extra virgin olive oil and we will use it a few times a week. Um, but if someone likes the taste and it certainly adds a different mouthfeel to your food and people enjoy that, um, then if you're going to have one or two tablespoons a day, go for it. But you just asked me to answer a question quickly that remains unanswered, Clint. So I, I don't have the definitive answer, but nutritional science doesn't have the definitive answer. But that's my take on it. Great. Okay. Thanks for that. And then finally, I promise finally, probiotics. You know, we've had guests on the show who are just absolute experts on probiotics and using prebiotics and so forth. Do you feel that that is something that is beneficial to folks who are trying to improve their microbiome? I'd almost never recommend them. There are a few very specific clinical scenarios within, uh, you know, the ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease world where I might use a very specific antibiotic for, or probiotic for a very specific indication. But should everybody be taking a probiotic? I don't think so. I don't think so. So when we look at the studies, looking at the effect that these probiotic supplements have on the gut microbiome, the researchers generally have to work really hard to demonstrate a small effect within the gut microbiome. And then we have this concept that you know, it's as these microbes pass through your gut microbiome, they exert positive change around them. And that's fair enough. I get it. I, I've seen the papers on that. Yes, you can. You can, if you try really hard, show benefits in the microbiome. There's a lot of money in the probiotic industry. It's worth billions of dollars a year. And for me, I think the probiotic industry is sort of tapping in to that pill or potion mentality where I'll just take this shake or I'll just take this pill or I'll just take this potion and that will give me the health advantage. So, you know, it gives me the excuse to maybe not see, be so healthy in my diet and lifestyle. But when we look at the studies that take humans and make and put them on a healthy whole food plant-based diet, 
and take out the animal products and take out the processed stuff and fill their diet with a, a rich diversity of plants. The changes in the human gut microbiome that we see are dramatic. I mean, they put anything that a probiotic can achieve way in the corner. So if, if someone can produce a study showing that if you take an individual who is on a healthy, whole food, plant-based diet with a great diversity of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes in their diet, if you take that person and then give them a probiotic supplement, and if their gut microbiome gets even better, which I doubt, then I'll start recommending them. But I haven't seen that study. Love it. Love that answer. Okay, mate. Well, tell us, how can uh, people follow you online, either a social media channel or, or um, if someone lives in the United Kingdom and they want to come and see you, um, is the, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yes. If you, Instagram is the best place, to be honest, um, okay. Clint. So um, I've only got enough time really to maintain one social media presence. So I'm on Instagram. So I'm at Dr. Alan Desmond. So that's Dr. Alan Desmond. Or if you just type my name, Alan Desmond, into Instagram, I'll pop up. Um, you'll see this face. And that's yep. it. Okay, great. Well, for those people watching online, I've just been hit with the brightest light through the shades. Yeah, I'm getting it here as well. I'm getting it here as well. Yeah. Thank God the the glass uh, stops UV. Otherwise, you'd be burnt on half your face right now. (laughs) Um, So this has been uh, thoroughly enjoyable and very, very interesting. It's definitely worth my wait a year and a half to get hold of you and do this interview with you. (laughs) I'm very grateful. And if you could thank your kids and wife for me too for giving you giving you over for an hour for us. That's uh, that would be uh, really, uh, really great. And um, look, thanks again. I've learned a ton, enjoyed chatting with you. And I look forward to, uh, you know, meeting you again in person down the track. Once this COVID thing comes under control and we're all able to travel again, I'd love to get over to the UK and, uh, and hook up in person and, and enjoy a few good whole food plant-based meals with you. Oh, we'd love to host you. Plant-Based Health Professionals UK would love to host you. And that's one final plug. Plant-Based Health Professionals UK. I'm a former advisory board member and ambassador now for pbhp.uk. So please check out the website. And thanks, Clint. It's been an absolute pleasure. We could, we could, do, we could go all day, right? We could. We could. Yeah. We could. I'm, I'm withholding questions thinking, no, no, no. I promise one more and that'll do. So thanks very much once again. I'll let you go. And uh, I'm very grateful. Appreciate it, Clint. Take care. Thanks for listening to Rheumatoid Solutions. If you'd like to get more help to live an easier, healthier, and happier life, visit rheumatoidsolutions.com.